Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. fact about my guest today when she was nine years old she was cast to play laura ingalls wilder in the tv series little house on the prairie and now all these years later she is having a full circle moment where she in her memoir back to the prairie chronicles her adventure of buying a place in upstate new york and really building it from the ground up it's a really beautiful book and i'm so honored to have melissa gilbert on the podcast welcome melissa Hey, everyone. My guest today is Melissa Gilbert. Melissa starred as Laura Ingalls Wilder on the NBC hit television show Little House on the Prairie. She has starred in numerous movies and plays. She served two terms as president of the Screen Actors Guild. She is the author of many books, including Prairie Tale, a memoir, My Prairie Cookbook, and most recently, Back to the Prairie. She is married to the actor Timothy Busfield. Together, they share children and grandchildren and dogs and chickens. And I am so honored to have the extraordinary actress, writer, human being, Melissa Gilbert on the podcast. Hello. Hello. That's the sweetest intro. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. The idea that during this pandemic that we are um, slowly inching our way out of into a new version of living within whatever the future holds, that not only did you and your adorable husband find a house upstate in the Catskills, uh, which which live in New York uh, State for anyone who is not from this area and to listeners all over the world, um, and found this house, somehow took it from where it was and made it into a home. And then really it became base camp for the pandemic where you very much like your character that you played for many, many years as a child, um, homesteaded as it were. I know that you didn't take like a horse covered wagon. Um, (laughs) Maybe, maybe it was an SUV, who knows. Um, But I, I really wonder, like, is it all, is everything just predetermined? Was it all destiny? Like, did you have to play Laura in order to write 
this incredible book, Back to the Prairie. Like, how do you see all of this? I I can't, I can't sort of extract any step in my life that led to this or it would be different. I mean, I can't, if I changed one iota of it, um, I, I can tell you that my mom read the book. Um, she just finished it yesterday and she basically said to me, I always knew this, this sort of outdoorsy, wild, um, creative person was in you. I saw it all the time, but our, you know, our lives were so busy and there was jobs and then interviews to do and traveling and appearances and school. And, you know, it, she said, I was so grateful that you had that show to go to because you had that on your set. She said, but to know you're living that now and that that's coming out of you organically makes me so happy. And, and I think that kind of says it all. She knew it was there and I knew it was there. It was just a question of, of finding it. And I knew that, you know, when Tim and I bought the house in the Catskills, we wanted it as an escape from the city, just to have a place to go on weekends, as most people do. And the more we got it ready for that, the more habitable we made it, the more comfortable it became, the more time we spent up there. And it, it really was fully completed and ready for us by Thanksgiving, Christmas of, of 2019. So it wasn't that much longer that we went up right. on Friday, the 13th of March, 2020, thinking, well, we'll just stay here until this thing is over. Little did we know not only how long that would take, but that we would then <clears throat> establish this life up there that's now become the, that's where we are the majority of our time. It all yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, we only come to the city for work or doctor's appointments or sushi. <laughs> yeah. That hasn't quite found itself in the in the Barryville area, but I feel like it will. I feel I like we're too. getting there. It's way, it's getting close to Port Jervis, so it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. But also, like, you guys have really, you know, I can't imagine, you know, Matthew Broderick was on this podcast. Tim and I laughed about their time together a lot. Um, and, you know, to this day, he's walking down the street and people are like, Bueller, Bueller. And each one of them feels like they have very specially figured out how to communicate with him. And then, you know, he <laughs> is so generous and is like, no one's ever said that before. What an amazing way to say hi to me. So I feel like um, you have been, because you are so beautiful and still look so very much like the character you played in the 70s. Um, I cannot imagine that you are not either constantly told you look exactly like the girl who was on Little House on the Prairie or that you are. And so now you're living in this like, it's one thing when you're in LA and people are sort of, I mean, they never get used to the excitement of seeing someone that they love so much in person, but it's sort of expected that you may walk into a Gelson's and see somebody from a TV show that you love. Um, now you're like living in a really small town in the country. And I wonder what the experience of being a big TV star is now living in like this really, um, I don't know, just gentle community that hasn't been concerned with that sort of stuff. Well, it's really interesting because I, um, <clears throat> Little House on the Prairie is actually and, and remains and always has been way more popular in the, quote, flyover states and towns than it has been in the big cities. I mean, people 
in LA and New York and Chicago, or not so much Chicago, but LA and New York will sort of secretly say, you know, I watched Little House on the Prairie. It's a great show, right? They're not all that proud of it. Um, people everywhere else go bananas and they loved it and they watch it all the time and they have such fond memories of it. So I'm actually the opposite. It happens more in small towns that I get recognized than in big towns. Tim's the big oh. town guy. They remember West Wing. They remember 30 something, all very urban, urbane shows. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so at first, when we were first upstate, it happened a bit, but then there's also, it happened more in Michigan when we were living in Michigan, a lot, like people showing up with casseroles and dropping cookies off and inviting us to church all the time and that, that, that sort of stuff. That's not as, as prevalent upstate, but there is, I think, I think it took the people in our area a lot less time to get over it because there are people who are way more recognizable than me that come up there and live up there and have homes up there. So it's not that exciting. And because we're there all the time, now we're just sort of part of the fabric of the area. Like, you know, maybe people who are new to the area, I'll feel them. I can hear, Hey, that, I heard she lives up here, but the people yeah. that are locals just are, it's a given that we're there and we're just part of life up there and fully integrated with all kinds of different people and situations. Yeah. And, and so how did you write this book? What's your process for writing and how did the idea come about? Um, I would love to take credit for the idea to write this book, but I cannot. Um, the, during the course of lockdown and all of that, like everyone else, the only way to really stay connected with the outside world was through social media. So I was posting Instagram pictures and stories and all of that stuff. And like everyone, really one of the primary subjects we all shared and talked about was food, comfort food. Everyone was making sourdough starter. I'm the only one who could not get it together to make a, a good sourdough starter. I will someday. Um, it's going to happen. I just don't know when. I, it maybe it's You heard it here, folks. You heard it on the podcast. <laughs> She's going to listen. If Jake Gyllenhaal can make a sourdough starter, I can make a sourdough starter. There so, you go. Uh, um, but, but we were all sharing recipes and sharing our, the hobbies we were exploring. And so that sort of became a part of it. And, and then during the summer of 2020, there was that huge, uh, which we're still going through social and racial reckoning and awakening. And, all of a sudden, Little House on the Prairie, which had been comforting people during the pandemic, became a show with a message. They realized, a lot of people who were watching it realized that we were telling stories about all the things we were going through that summer, about racism and anti-Semitism and uh, human rights violations and addiction and also um, pandemics and quarantines and plagues. So... There was this sort of resurgence of, of conversation around Little House where, you know, people like Viola Davis were posting things like Little House in the Prairie was woke. No clue. Um, and I knew, and those of us who were involved in the show certainly knew that we had told some very hard hitting stories, but it was non-exploitive and very couched in sort of a very palatable way. So families could absorb the messages that Michael Landon was trying to get across. Um, so all of that happened and CBS this morning was watching this and said, we want to come up and do a story about how you're going back to the prairie. And I went, oh, that's cute. What a cute idea. So they did. 
socially distanced the whole time with Mo Rocca in the yard. And it aired, and a little while later, my literary agent, Dan Strone, called and said, this is a book. And I said, it is? He said, yes, this whole back to the prairie thing. And there it was again, this whole back to the prairie thing. And I said, hmm, okay, well, let me think about it. And before we even, before I even sat down and wrote a, a, a presentation to take out to publishers, he called my former publishers at Simon & Schuster, and they said, don't go anywhere. We want the book. I hadn't even written anything yet. And I, I thought, okay, well, now I have to do it. And the process actually physically for me was just getting up in the morning and sitting down and writing and getting the stories out. And fortunately, at this age, my, my previous memoir, I went way, way back. And I was only in my 40s when I wrote that. So I actually had a memory then. And <laughs> the only thing I had to do was like check dates with my old filofaxes, which I kept in a trunk yes. at the foot of the bed. Um, this was only going back a few years. So I, I did have to look back and verify a couple dates here and there, but I actually remembered quite a bit of it. Um, yeah, this is before my memory literally started pouring out of my ears. Um, <laughs> oh, aging. It is not for babies or sissies. Um, anyway. No, but that's that, such a big part of the book, this embracing um, with joy and humor and gratitude where you are. I mean, you go through like an insane surgery during this book, you know, uh, uh, and, and have to deal with what it is to be away from your beloveds in a hospital when you're getting a surgery. You were taken in by your surgeon, which is... <laughs> Um, doesn't happen for everyone, but what an incredible way to recover if you can't be with your husband. Well, I will say this um, about my surgeon and his wife and daughter and family. I am not the only person they have taken in. And contrary to what people would think, we're not the people that have stayed with them to recover from neurosurgery are not all a bunch of celebrities. In fact, I think I was the only one. He does this a lot for veterans and for people who are... Um, uh, in difficult financial positions. And he's just that kind of guy and his family is that kind of family. So I, I was very, very lucky. And, you know, we do have, I mean, this is a doctor who's been in my life since 1992. So, and he's done, this is the third operation he's done on my spine. So, um, we definitely have that history and it was, you know, we've been pals aside from this. So it was, it was really nice because I did have to fly cross country in November of 2020 during another surge to go have the surgery and then fly back by myself four days later, which is miraculous in and of itself. You, um, you talked in, uh, your first book and, and now you are the living embodiment of an East coast person that you grew up in LA and obviously, you know, you, we're doing commercials. I mean, you were, you know, you're the poster child for, for child actor um, and had not done a tremendous amount of theater growing up while you were in LA doing all these TV shows. And then at some point you made your way to the East coast. And is that something that you did on your own? Was that a planned career thing? Did you need to see what this other side of the country was like? What was that moment that brought you into a Shana Madel and all the things that we who were here waiting for you loved so much, wanted to be in. Um, and it was the beginning of a theater career that has 
gone on now for decades with you doing, even recently, like during the pandemic, when how when Sally met when Harry met rehab, right? Was that yes, the name of the yes, play? When Harry met right. Rehab. So, can you talk a little bit about that move from LA to New York? Yep, I, I had done a play when I was fourteen. I did my first play. I did the Miracle Worker before oh, we did right. it as a movie. But that was sort of it for me for a long time. And I had come to New York on um, a sort of a vacation, just hanging out with friends as I was wont to do. I would fly in for the weekend sometimes or come to see someone in a play or whatever was going on. And so I had flown in um, just to hang out. And while I was here, my agents called and said, they're doing this new play, Shana Madel. It's off Broadway. Is it something you want to do? And so I called my, I had, at this point, I had agents, managers, business managers, my mom. I had like the whole kit and caboodle. And I called my managers and they said, you know, we, you sh- there's no money in it. You're never going to, it's off Broadway. You're, you're not going to make any money. I mean, we read the play. It's okay, but why would you do this? And I said, because I think it's scary and it's a challenge. There's no guarantee I'm going to get the job, but it would mean I'd have to move to New York for the first time. And I think it may be time to to step forward and, and do something like this that scares me. So I auditioned, um, walked into the audition, and the first person I saw was Cordelia Richards, who is a dear mutual friend of both of ours. Yeah, I met you because we were bridesmaids in her wedding. Yes, we were, dressed we in were pink. Dressed in pink. And um, she was the first person I met, and that started uh, a lifelong friendship. I'm so grateful for that. And we both got roles in the play. And so, I mean, I went home, packed up my stuff, grabbed my dog and my cat, came here. I found an apartment, but it wasn't ready yet. So I temporarily stayed at Tom Hulse's place because I had done a play with him before that in uh, Chautauqua, upstate. We did the Glass Menagerie together. And he was out of town, so he let me have his place until my place was ready in Gramercy Park. And I moved into this furnished little apartment in Gramercy Park and started going to rehearsal, and my whole life changed. I fell more in love with the East Coast than I ever had been before. Um, Did this play. Um, It was critically received really well. I had the most incredible time doing it. Like I said, I made lifelong friends um, and met the man I would marry, my first husband, and gave birth to my first child here. So New York always held a very special place in my heart for all of those firsts and, 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 and challenges. And I came back many, many times over the years. And when Tim and I met, when we were first dating, we said we both agreed that at some point we would both live in New York again. We just didn't know when, and the time came for us to come to sort of settle our youngest kid in who had graduated from college, and I auditioned for a play and got the role, and once again, we stayed, and here we are, and now this is our home, 100%. So you are speaking to me right now from an apartment in New York City. You're not upstate. Is this an apartment you guys found together, or did one of you live in it before you met each other? We found this place together. Um, we did not have a place here before either of us met. We'd been living in Michigan for five years, and we came here and stayed in an Airbnb for the first month, and then we found another um, Lee List place, which is an industry-only rental list. Sublet, yeah, rental, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it is basically a sublet for the second yeah. month, and and then I got another play, 
with the Irish rep, the dead 1904. And that's when we said, okay, I, this is it. We're going to stay. We're here. We're here. We're here. And that's when we found the place we're in now. And how did you find you live in the Catskills? What were you doing there? How did that become the place that is now the the star of the book, along with all of the animals and friends that helped you make this house a home? When we were driving here from Michigan, lo those many years ago, we um, stopped in... We were, it looked like we were going to stop. We knew we were coming to the Catskills. We sort of, we were going through the Delaware water gap and then we were going to come down. We sort of wanted to explore a little bit on our way down. And we looked up places, fun places to stay um, in the Catskills and specifically Sullivan County and the Stick It In in Barryville came up. So that's where we stayed on our way in and we sort of fell in love with it. And we, we met um, Johnny Pizzolatto and, and Roswell Hamrick right away. And they sent us to Narrowsburg for dinner. First they sent us, no, they sent us to, um, uh, to Henning's local in Keshecton. Took me years to figure out how to pronounce that name, by the way. You should hear us. Yeah. Whatever. Keshecton. And, um, and we just fell in love. Then we went to Narrowsburg and we saw the shops there and we ate at the Laundrette and it just sort of expanded from there. And that's when we came into the city and we knew once we were here for a while, we were going to have to find a place. And this was Sullivan County was the place we wanted to look. And so we would go up on weekends and stay at the Stick It In or rent an Airbnb and look for properties. And that's when we found our, our home, which we lovingly refer to as the Cabbage. When you saw the cabbage, it sounds like it was in a rough state, let's just say. <laughs> um, it had not received a lot of love in recent history. No. Um, why weren't you, why didn't that scare you? What was it about? Because it really was like, I mean, some people would have been like, okay, we're going to call a contractor. They're going to, we like where this is, but they're going to gut it. Maybe it's a tear down. We don't know. And we're going to come back when it's all done. The process that you guys went through was not that at all. No. And, 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 and it was, there were a couple of reasons for doing it the way we did it. First of all, we had severe financial restrictions on us, to be honest. And I wrote about this in the book. We, um, you know, we are like, a lot of performers and, and people in our industry were gig workers at this point. I just said to someone recently, you know, the assumption that we're all on long running television series and multimillionaires is just not accurate or, or, you know, feature film multimillionaires. I mean, when you think about Little House on the Prairie, which was the last time I did a long running television series, it's almost 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. The money's gone. It's gone. Right. So even though people can still watch it all over the world, right, any time of day, and what's that's funny. not going right into your blood veins. Well, no, it it is. It's just dripping very slowly. Like the other day, I got a twenty cent check. Got it. Got it. So we have to survive, and we survive by working job to job. So that with you know uh, uh, student loans for multiple kids, X an ex-wife on his part and all the money that comes out on top and then past debts that and deals we both have with the IRS did not enable us to just find the perfect house that's completely finished or one that was a complete teardown to just send in a bunch of people and rebuild it. We knew we had to do it ourselves. 
And we wanted to actually, we looked forward to that because we knew that by doing as much as we did ourselves, we were putting our own sweat equity into our home. And this was the first home we've owned together. So had either of you done that before? Uh, no, not like this. No, I, I certainly not, not the way um, we had to with this place. And, and, you know, we, we, we hired Sal Bertolino, our contractor to do the renovations and put in plumbing and heat, which we didn't have and right. insulation, which it didn't have. And, um, to redo the whole kitchen and bathroom and the things that we needed. And then we got a new roof on the place and the pandemic hit. So anything else we wanted to do to the property at that point, we were going to have to completely do ourselves and we had to figure that out. And we did. And it was, you know, at first it was daunting. I, I know we both thought, well, we got to figure this out. Let's, let's make this happen. And, and we did it. And we actually like, we got the saws and the equipment and the lumber and all of the things that we needed. And we were cutting wood and drilling and hammering and digging and pouring concrete. And, you know, I learned so much, um, just the torque on the screwdriver. I had no idea. I was so excited learning how to torque the, 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 um, screwdriver. It was, it was so much fun. So here we are, and we're still doing it. We've got projects this summer that we're going to do up at the cabbage. And it, it's really so much more satisfying to, for me, at least, and I know for Tim, too, to do it ourselves and to have that sense of accomplishment at the end of the day when we're sticky and grimy and covered in bug spray and sunscreen and dirt and my nails are just ratchet and nasty. I'm so happy at the end of a day like that, so much happier than I I could have imagined I'd be. And your fearlessness about mice and bear <laughs> and all of the critters and ticks, by the way, that are very real in that area. Um, why were you not terrified of bears? Let's not make a mistake. I'm not cavalier about bears. Um, our little bear who came around, I mean, I was, I, when he came around that first time, I was shaking. First of all, I, okay. I could imagine him eating my dog. I, then right. at that time was my little French bulldog, Josephine. So that scared me. I didn't want any of us to get hurt by it. But then, you know, from a safe distance, once I was in the, inside the house looking at him out the window, and I'm assuming he's a he, um, mm -hmm. he's kind of cute. Not that I wanted to go hand feed him or anything, but I didn't. Once I knew we could drive him away with air horns and loud noises, I didn't feel as threatened. So for when you go for a walk on your own in the area, do you bring an air horn with you? Yeah. Are you mini, worried about we have mini ones we carry in our pockets. And have you experienced that? Like have you seen a bear alone on a walk? Not yet. Okay. Have you? No. <laughs> I feel like that would not be a good thing for you at all. Alana. I, have I have stopped leaving the property. I will. I literally, literally, everyone comes back from their walk or their run, and they're so excited, and they're yeah. like, "Guess what we saw?" And I'm literally like repeating to myself, "Okay, now I like the instructions that everyone has given me," um, because I have a teeny dog also, and I'm terrified that said bear will eat Lola. Um, 
I'm always terrified. You know, they're like, well, unless the mom is there, you know, you're okay. And I'm like, I don't know if the mom is there. Like, I just don't know. No, no, I jump on chairs if there's a mouse. You've had hundreds of them crawling out from mice don't <laughs> under your bed mice don't worry me no they well yeah it sounds like we live in a mouse infested house it was when we, no, when we found i mean when you moved in i don't mean now yeah when we took apart the built-in bed that was in that primary bedroom it was full of mice and i just my instinct was get them out and so i grabbed the first thing which was a crock pot and so i was scooping up mice and carrying them outside like they weren't going to run right back in <laughs> Well, we are right. I mean, our instincts tell us one thing. Tell me when you think back to being little and doing a show about this kind of thing, your show um, had parents at the center of it that everyone wished were their parents, Right. right? Like not only did we want to go back in time to simpler times, we wanted Ma and Pa Ingalls to be our parents, um, to have siblings that you could fight with in love. Who doesn't want like a little sister running down the hill, finding out, oh my God, twins play that part. Like it's all so amazing when, <laughs> you know, that was early days. There was no internet. No one understood there were twins that played little kids on a show. So there's really two of them. And then an article comes out that says that. So you spend every show trying to figure out which one it is, right? Like, which one is it? Um, And now you're writing a book again about, it's like, it's very aspirational about a couple who have found each other later in life, um, honestly having relationships that brought incredibly beautiful children into the world um, and lessons learned, but weren't your lifetime partners. And then you come together with like, you know, Elliot from 30 something and, and half pint. I mean, it's just the greatest for those of us who love these kinds of stories. Um, And then you're just talking about the relationship um, and not in a salacious way, but in a really honest way. Um, Did you have to talk to your family for this book the way I'm sure you have for others about what you can or can't share. What was that like in your um, marriage? I reached out specifically about a few specific things because as, as the process um, continued on, um, I would consult with Tim and say, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Tim said, tell any story you want, talk about it all. I'm, I'm in, I'm, I don't care. You should, you know, whatever you feel you need to write. But there mm-hmm. were certain things like my, our son, our youngest, Michael, um, in the basement in the house in Michigan, the thing, the thing in the basement, which is what we called him. I asked him, you know, I think it was even Tim, it may have been Tim or the publisher who said, is, is Michael okay being referred to as the thing in the basement? So he's, you know, 26 years old now. And I asked him and he went, of course, it's part of who I was at that time. Right. Um, when our now second youngest, we just had another grandchild born this last week. So our second youngest grandchild, Ripley Lou, was born. I had written about her birth and my son Dakota and his wife Marissa wanted to see that before it was locked in. So I sent it to them and they did have some changes because there was a lot about that actual day that they didn't convey that they wanted conveyed. So I sort mm-hmm. of, I, I included their thoughts and ideas. Um, my other kids, my two older boys said, write whatever you want. And, and, um, and I, I, I wrote very little um, about the rest of the kids um, just because our relationship is, it, it's not like that. I can't say really as much. It's, it's, um, 
a seat, you know, we're still, even nine years later, still finding our, our feet and our balance. It's not yeah, learning each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Learning yeah. each other. So, you know, that takes time. So that, that is what it is. And, um, I actually have, feel a, a tremendous sense of relief knowing that my mother read the book cover to cover and loved it. I feel really good about that because my first book was, you know, I was coming from a much angrier, um, much less peaceful place. And I really um, gave her quite a drubbing and it was very hard for her. And so this, I think, really uh, went a long way towards healing a lot of that between the two well, of us. Yeah. And, and the power of the written word in that way. And the idea that you guys have come full circle in yeah. so many ways at this point in your life that comes through. How would you, you've written a memoir that was so good. You describe it as you, you were in a more bitter place maybe, but to the reader, it just felt like a very honest reveal of someone we knew as a character yeah. and sort of getting to understand who you are as a person. Um, some of us have gotten to know you in your political life as part of the Screen Actors Guild. And that was an incredible chapter in your life where you really, I mean, your leadership skills and your passion for that and, and your whole possible future political life, maybe in local politics and the Catskills, maybe if it didn't work out in Michigan, as it were, which you also share in the book. Like there are so many things that, those of us certainly in New York didn't know that you were pursuing during your time in Michigan. Um, what, what is this book to you? What, what, why did you write it? What do you hope people get from it? Because the memoir did share so much of your story into your forties. And there is a memoir in this book vibe to this also, right? It's just yeah, a different 100%. kind of storytelling. It's, yeah. It's, 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 it, it is, it's very much a memoir. I mean, it's a memoir of the last 12 years as opposed to the last entire lifetime. Cause yeah. been there, discussed it. It's time, you know, this was the focus on this and, and really the thing I want people to, there's a few things I want people to come away with. One is that there's nothing anyone can go through in their life that someone hasn't been through before or is going to go through after. And these are the things that join us together. And the other thing um, I want people to, to maybe take away from this book is that um, to remember that during, during the beginning months and years of the pandemic, when we were locked down and struggling to find things like toilet paper, we all really realized what we need as opposed to what we want. Suddenly names like Manolo Blahnik didn't matter so much anymore. Um, you know, when you can't find the Charmin, you, the world has changed. And, um, and then finally, I want people to realize that we've been through something unprecedented and extraordinary, and we're continuing to go through it. And as we emerge from our silos, which began politically and then became actual necessities for our physical well-being, I think we need to remember how to be human again and how to interact in a loving and supportive way because we're not alone, because we're all so much more alike than people realize, and simply because everything's gotten so vitriolic and, and, and separate 
and um, that will not serve us in the long run. So that's what I'm hoping. And then the final thing I'm hoping people get is that even during a pandemic and lockdown and all of the things we've walked through, the silver lining is there's always humor to be found. I There's a lot of humor in the book. Tim and I laughed through a great deal of this situation and we continue to. And I think it's the thing um, that really saved our bacon. When you um, when you go back into the world now, we're at this kind of... By the way, guys, we are hearing like the noises you're going to hear throughout this <laughs> that you've heard. I believe a chew toy for a dog. I'm so sorry. Tim Busfield uh, putting a leash on and off, some doors closing, some fo- <laughs> some construction work. You're not imagining these things. They're all happening and you're it's it's a very up close and personal experience and you love it cuz you get to feel like what it's like to live in Melissa Gilbert's apartment. So I know you're here <laughs> for it. Um what are the things that you want to keep with you? If we do end up feeling like it's like the flu now and we're moving forward and life feels a little more like it did before, what's the thing you want to keep with you that was actually a wonderful gift from this experience? Oh, there's so many wonderful gifts. One of them is the reprioritization of my life and and really realizing what is most important and what I don't need and don't want in my life anymore. Um it's really important to main, for me to maintain this peaceful place that I've found, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually peaceful place that I found. And, and on a, just a simply practical level, I have not had a cold in th- almost three years. And I have a tendency to get either pneumonia or bronchitis or something at least once a year, and it hasn't happened. So right. as far as I'm concerned, the mask is going to stay on in public spaces. Um, and I'm hoping that, um, and I've made a vow to myself that I'm going to stop making squinty eyed, angry face at people who don't wear masks. Um, as long as people stop making squinty eyes, angry face at me for wearing one. That's sort of like the jumping off point at this point. Yeah. All right, before I let you go, is there a little known fact about you that you can share? You who have revealed so much in so many different ways, is there something maybe you haven't shared before? Is there a little known fact about me? Um, The very, okay, it's dumb and trivial, but it just popped in my head. When I was two years old, I started studying dance in Los Angeles at um, a dance studio Um, that was called the Al Gilbert Dance Studio. No relation. And that's where I developed my love of dance at Al Gilbert's Dance Studio in Hollywood and didn't really think about it much until I saw the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and they showed the street and they had the sign for Al Gilbert's Dance Studio painted in and I just about fell out of my seat. That is incredible. And it was such the seed for, I mean, your mom talks about how, you know, you'd go on vacation and if there was some kind of stage, you would hop up and be incredibly generous with your talent for strangers. (laughs) Yes. And she saw a spark. And, And we, because of that, have been able to kind of get to be the beneficiaries of your talent and your artistry and your humor and your warmth and 
I cannot wait to see all the things that come next. But Melissa Gilbert, thank you so, so much for this time today. It was so awesome. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you upstate. I know. I can't wait either. I'll see you at PEX. If you are a human being who loves musicals, who loves comedy, and who loves deeply moving pieces of theater, I urge you to go see The Bedwetter, the newest musical at the Atlantic Theater Company, playing from April 30th until July 3rd, 2022. It is an adaptation of the best-selling memoir by Sarah Silverman. In this case, the musical is written by Sarah and Joshua Harmon, who wrote the show Bad Jews. And it features a sensational final score by our beloved, beloved Adam Schlesinger, who passed away during the COVID pandemic. The director is the great Annie Kaufman. The choreography, which is brilliant, is by Byron Easley. The girl at the center of this play, the actress playing young Sarah at age 10, is so brilliant. And it is such a unique show. It is deeply moving, deeply hilarious. If you are a person who's ever met another person, if you're a person who uh, believes in second chances, if you want to laugh harder than you've laughed in a very long time and be moved deeply, this ensemble is actually incredible. I have to single out Darren Goldstein uh, for just being amazeballs in this. Anyway, The Bedwetter at the Atlantic Theater. Go to atlantictheater.org. They spell theater, T-H-E-A-T-E-R, atlantictheater.org for tickets, more information about the show. If I were you, I would get a ticket immediately because it's selling out really quickly uh, because, well, because it's Sarah Silverman and she's just one of a kind and maybe one of the funniest humans on the planet. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.